0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's public lecture by Daryl Cunningham, about whom I'll say more in a minute. My name is Danny Kwa. I'm Professor of Economics and International Development here at LSE. It's my great pleasure to welcome both you and, of course, our speaker to the LSE this evening. The lecture this evening is on Daryl's new book, but it's also titled, helpfully, Anne Rand, The Financial Crash, or The Financial Crisis and the Age of Selfishness, which is a good synopsis of the circle of ideas that Daryl will this evening take you through. Now I don't know about the rest of you, but after all these decades of my being involved with public lectures, Tonight is my first illustrated lecture by a graphic journalist, and I'm looking forward very much to the evening. Now at LSE, at public events, we encourage people to live tweet as we go along. This involves, this gets more people outside involved in the evening's events. If you are so inclined to help out on that, It would be great if you could use the hashtag hash LSE economy as the evening unfolds. I'm told that you've seen the hashtag from earlier this evening's slide, so I'll leave it as that. I need to inform you that this evening's event is being recorded and with luck, a podcast will be available soon after. Turning to tonight's speaker, Daryl Cunningham is a renowned graphic artist, a journalist on hard-hitting stories. When I was reading up on what he does, I found myself attempting to refrain from using the word cartoons and cartoonist, even though he himself describes his work as that. And in the discussion before we came in this evening... We realize that while today, cartoons and cartoonists carry a certain connotation, of course going back 150, 200 years, cartoons meant serious social commentary, as this evening's lecture will turn out to be. Tonight, Darrell will take us through his interpretation of the swirl of ideas, the swirl of events, and the swirl of personalities that surround the largest economic disturbance of the last 80 years. Daryl has agreed that he will speak for approximately 45 minutes, after which I hope you will all participate um, in a question and answer session with our speaker. At this point, I would like to invite you to join me in welcoming Daryl the podium.
1: Well, graphic reportage, I'm still kind of uncomfortable with that term, I still like to think of myself as a cartoonist, basically. So, my background, kind of, before I became started doing books was I worked in mental health and my first book was on mental health and that's how I started doing sort of non-fiction, sort of um, exploratory, taking on quite difficult subjects. Um, the mental health book, Psychiatric Tales, sort of had chapters on, each chapter had, uh, was on uh, Various psychiatric illnesses. And I followed that up with a book called Science Tales, which is basically a series of uh, um, cartoon essays, if you like, on controversial uh, scientific matters. Uh, things like um, evolution, not so controversial in Europe, but is definitely in other parts of the world, um, climate change, and some uh, alternative uh, medicine subjects things like um, chiropractic and homeopathy so when i finished that book i was sort of looking around for what another sort of big subject uh, to tackle and it seemed to me that um, um, we tend to think of a, there's a big sort of gap between the layman the layman's understanding of science and there's like a huge gap there between ordinary people and scientists and people don't really understand science but that is nothing to the huge grand canyon size gap between you know your regular man in the street and economics which seems like uh, some, some crazy kind of science that can't be fathomed so I thought I'd try and write a book that's sort of explained this to the ordinary person and I speak as an ordinary person not as an economist Mm -hmm. and also looking around it seemed to me that at that time when we started to write it the word austerity was like the buzzword and we seemed to have moved into the age of austerity and that austerity post the 2008 crash sort of seemed to define our time as much as like the Cold War defined the sort of um, the latter part of the last century. So we're living in a time that's entirely defined by a particular economic uh, uh, situation. So I wanted to write about that. And this is the cover of the book. This is the American cover of the book. Because the Americans, Abrams particularly, wanted something more specific. And they wanted um, Ayn Rand on the cover as well. Because although Ayn Rand isn't particularly well-known in Europe, she's still a big deal in the United States and very influential. A book sell in, still in their thousands all the time. We've just gone, in fact, past the, um, the centenary of a birth. I think it was last Tuesday or the Tuesday before... Um, so, can I ask you, can you, who knows here who Ayn Rand is? Can you put your hands up? Quite a lot of people. Uh, and it is Ayn, that's how you pronounce it. If you rhyme it with mine, you'll always remember it. And that's, if you know a work and a personality, that's quite appropriate, really. So, Ayn Rand, that wasn't her actual name, uh, a real name, that was a name she assumed. It was actually known as. Alyssa Rosenbaum when she was born. Why she chose Ayn Rand is something of mystery. The Rand section is thought to have come from the kind of typewriter that she, she was using. But that's pretty much just a guess. And the Ayn thing is still very much a mystery. Nobody really knows. But she was born in St. Petersburg on the 2nd of February 1905 into sort of quite a well-to-do uh, family, her uh, father ran a pharmacy business he ran, they had um, their own like maids they lived uh, near the shop I think it was below the shop or uh, above the shop they had their own maids, so they were quite a well to do middle class family and uh, there's a story here about our mother Anna who was quite a was thought to be a, quite a social climber uh, one day when Rand was about five a mother came into the playroom where she and her sister had strewn their toys. And the mother says, look at this mess. You will, you will have to choose some of these toys to put away and some to keep and play with now. And in a year, you can trade the toys you have put away for those you uh, have kept. The other way around. Rand imagined the pleasure she would get when her favourite toys were eventually returned. So she handed over a best of playthings including a painted, mechanical wind-up chicken. One year later, Mama, isn't it time now for my toys to be returned to me? And the mother says, Poor child, I gave, you, gave your toys to the orphanage. If you really had wanted them, you wouldn't have handed them over in the first place. So she got an early lesson there in the sort of uh, realities of life. And she was quite a very bright child, notable for her dark, piercing eyes and damning opinions. When she was asked at school to write an essay on why being a child was a joyous experience, she instead wrote a scathing denunciation of childhood. I would prefer an intelligent hell to a stupid paradise, she quoted Blaise Pascal in her essay. Now, she um, always had an eye on emigrating to America, where she saw sort of a, la- a lack of a land of dreams. And her family had people, family, already in the States who could sort of vouch for her. So after several kind of attempts, she managed to get to go to America. So she left in 1926, just before her 21st birthday. And she had a stamped passport and the sponsorship of relatives of her mother in Chicago Um, and she always said throughout her life that um, she owed nothing to anybody else anything to anybody else everything that she did was what she did herself she never asked for anything and so on but um, that's not really true I mean when interviewed a living relative said that Um, she'd often um, failed to repay or even offered to repay small loans that were given to her. And while she was in the the state, she stayed with relatives uh, for free, basically. And um, also, she managed to get... She wanted to be a writer, and she particularly wanted to work in the movies. And through her family connections with the film distributor, she managed to to get a letter of introduction to the DeMille organization in Hollywood. This is of course, in the, big, in the silent era of cinema. And a uh, family also paid for a train fare to California and initial living expenses. None of this help was acknowledged by land in the in later years. Back then, by the way, I mean, the, the sign Hollywood was Hollywood Land, because it was um, um, actually built as a, as an advertising hoarding for a nearby housing uh, development. But as as the years went by and became dilapidated, the sort of the land bit fell off. And uh, so you only get the Hollywood bit now. I think each letter is now sponsored by a major corporation. <laughs> well I won't go into that just There's some of Grant's uh, ideas about taxation. I'm saying, and on this page, she felt, uh, oh well, I'll go back to what happened to a family in um, in Russia because come the revolution, of course, um, um, the father um, found that his business was suddenly appropriated by the state uh, for the good of the people, and this sort of seems to start. Um, uh, uh, Rand's uh, dislike of uh, state intervention and she always um, said that nothing in her life um, really affected her and if you really wanted to find out about her you should really read her writings but it's quite obvious from looking at her past that this had a major effect on her on, a, on a psychology and her political thinking the fact that her father's business was stolen basically from him they had to then leave St. Petersburg and uh, go to the their Crimea, and where their, their father tried to um, set up another business. Um, they failed, and eventually, after a year or so, because they felt that the, the whole Russian Revolution would sort of blow over somehow, but in fact, um, that didn't happen. So they came back to St. Petersburg, where they found that they had to share their old apartment with two other families, and the, the whole streets at that time were full of people basically begging for... of de soldiers who were on the street, streets. It was a catastrophe, basically. So this must have affected Rand's thinking about state intervention. Her first novel was um, We the Living. She uh, set up in Hollywood... I'll tell you in a minute how she got settled there. But her first book was basically about, based heavily on experiences in, uh, in the Soviet Union, Union before she left. We the Living, 1936, showed the severity of life in communist Russia, especially for the despised middle classes. The book, which is shot through with autobiographical details, tells the story of three people struggling under the Soviet repression. Like all Rand's fiction, We the Living is a romantic melodrama wrapped in philosophical and political ideas. It demonstrates Rand's belief that any system that reduced individual rights for the sake of the common good would end in disaster. A second book, um, which was filmed called the Fountainhead and this is a book about an architect who uh, is commissioned to do a public housing project for the poor basically and because the builders deviate ever so slightly from his plans he personally dynamites this building, these buildings and so he's taken to core for this and the sort of the latter half of the book is a big speech in which he expounds the ideas of the individual over the needs of society. It was filmed with, um, I think it was Gary Cooper. Um, and it says here it's a strange movie for Hollywood to have made, and its poor critical reception reflected this. Rand increasingly disliked the film in the years after after stating that she would never again sell one of her novels to a film company unless she had the right to choose the director, screenwriter, and had control over the editing. When she was in Hollywood, she basically managed to get an introduction to uh, the head of the Demille organization himself, basically by hanging around in the car park until he came to the car, to his car and then basically like almost sandbagging him. But she, he was so impressed by her that he immediately gave her a job, first uh, as an, ex- an extra uh, in a mo- big movie that was currently in production called King of Kings, which is like a biblical epic. And um, she was asked to play a beggar, but she refused. She only only wanted to play a a member of the nobility. And she met a would soon to be husband on the set of that. He was playing a Roman soldier, and with the sort of single-minded determination which she's known for, she basically uh, stalked him and bagged him. So he was a quite a gentleman. And her third book is quite a huge epic Atlas Shroud <clears throat> tells the apocalyptic tale of an America ruined by collectivism, where industrialists are, are publicly derided for getting rich at the expense of the poor, and where profits are appropriate but for the sake of the people. In this world, mediocrity is the goal and high achievers are the enemy. Yet at a time of crisis, when they are most needed, the country's top industrialists are vanishing, leaving their banks, mines and factories without leadership. The incompetent second-handers who are left in charge can only watch helplessly as industry shuts down and America begins to run out of coal, steel and manufacturing goods. The mysterious figure at the heart of the novel is the copperhead Genius, John Gold. It is Gold. the story reveals, who has lured these titans of industry to his secret mountain town of Galt's Gulch in Colorado, where together they have created a utopian free market. Atlas Shrugged finishes, as the Fountainist does, with a long speech as John Galt broadcasts his manifesto, manifesto to a dying America. A speech that ends with Galt promising that the strikers would soon return to rescue a crumbling world well after she um, spent time in a certain amount of time in California she went to move to New York and, but before that before she moved to New York she met a young um, fan of hers called Nathaniel Brandon who was later become her lover so she moved to New York and she sort of brought round her a sort of little circle of fans and friends people often younger than she was who either went to the university with Nathaniel and his wife. And and one of these people who came into a circle, they jokingly referred to themselves as the collective, and they were all very interested in Anne's um, theories uh, and books. And we all tend to be intellectuals or in working in, the, in economics or in some way or another. But one of the people that came to, uh, into this little circle was Alan Greenspan. Alan Greenspan was born in Washington Heights area of New York in 1926. His parents divorced when he was five years old. His mother took him to live with her own parents in the Bronx. As a child, he showed precocious intelligence he was able to add up three-digit numbers in his head. (coughs) They were a musical family. Greenspan took up the clarinet, sharing a class with Stan Getz and later playing in the Woody Herman Band. Described as solitary and a straight arrow, Greenspan asserted his independence from his family by refusing to be bar bar mitzvahed. He studied economics at New York University, earning undergraduate and graduate degrees in, in the subject. He um, would later become, rise very high in uh, American politics and become uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve in New York. And he continued to be uh, in iron circle for for many years. So we get to the 1960s. and. Ayn's influence was still growing, and she uh, uh, was unusual in in terms of a lot of people on the American right in that she opposed the Vietnam War, because she felt that the state had not the right to override people's individual rights and send them to war against their will. And so she she was against the draft, uh, which was unusual. And for similar reasons, she spoke out against the various states' ban on abortion. She felt that that abortion should be left to the sole discretion of the woman. And she also, of course, was a famous atheist, which also set her apart from many on the American right. Well, having said that, uh, she stood up for women. In other words, she felt that uh, women's lib was just another form of collectivism, and she was quite sneery about it, really. And she had a quite a big bust-up um, in inner circle of the collective. I mean, they'd started, I um, think, called the Nathaniel Brandon Foundation around the late 60s, early 70s, which began to bring in a lot of money for Nathaniel, who was secretly um, Rand's lover. And basically, when he took himself to start seeing someone else, the whole sort of business that came out into the open, and so um, she basically ended not just the relationship but any kind of contact with them. And this is that was very dramatic and possibly with a good reason. But she had a tendency to um, cut people off very suddenly, she f- even felt the. They had uh, opinions different from hers, and a little group of the collective would often hold meetings uh, and, in effect, kind of have trials about individuals that they felt were slacking philosophically in in some way or another, uh, uh, in effect, uh, um, excommunicating them at the end of it. So, although she hated people like Stalin in the sort of dictatorship. In a a funny way, she um, sort of mirrored that in her own life, and in a sort of microscopic version of it. And she tended to, uh, as she got older, there were fewer and fewer people around her, but Alan Greenspan was unusually uh, one of the people who stuck with her. Excuse me a moment. So he'd, he'd risen up into um, a position within um, the American um, Federal Reserve at this time. Uh, in July 1968, Greenspan arranged for brand to witness the launch of Apollo 11 at Cape Kennedy, Florida, an event. The event thrilled her even though she didn't approve of government funded science projects unless they were of a military nature. She, um, she died in one thousand nine hundred and eighty two after a bout of pneumonia, but before this I mean she had she 'd been a, a chain smoker throughout her life, and she'd developed cancer uh, um, a couple of years before this and which she had to have a lung removed but she she, um, she refused to the end to believe that cancer and smoking were connected. She, even after um, she had the lung removed, she attempted to smoke again so she wouldn't have it. And so, uh, when she did die, she um, hundreds queued out of a outside a Madison Madison Avenue funeral home for the last chance to see her. Next to her coffin stood the symbol of her life, a six foot high floral design in the shape of a U.S. Do- dollar. She famously used to have a, a silver brooch was a, a U.S. dollar, which Nathaniel had given her. Um, but, I mean, um, I would say that, although she's seen as someone who venerated money above all else, that's not entirely true and all fair, because above everything, she, she really, um, it was a work that meant much to her and she would never have compromised, compromised that no matter how much money was available, available. So here's Alan Greenspan uh, speaking in um, in 2008 when he was testifying uh, about the 2008 uh, financial crash I'll go back a bit here because Um, Greenspan was had um, became he was appointed by Ronald Reagan uh, when Ronald Reagan came to power as chairman of the Federal Reserve and he stayed chairman of the Federal Reserve right until um, uh, George W. Bush came into power. So it's like 30 years he was one of the most powerful economic figures in the world. So he had huge influence uh, sitting in that chair there. So I'm going to talk a little bit about banking here. Uh, Well, after the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression... The United States had good reason to want to safeguard the divide between sort of Hyde Street banks and investment banking. So they passed the Glass-Steagall Act, 1933, that forbade Hyde Street banks from taking part in investment banking. This and other acts of law ensured commercial, that commercial banking, investment banking, residential mortgage lending and insurance were distinct and tightly regulated instruments in industries. No one wanted banks taking a customer's money and gambling with it. Well almost no one. In the old days investment banks were private partnerships, which meant that the capital they used was their own. If the partners underwrote the sale of a new issue of stock, they were risking their own personal money. Finance was generally a stable business that allowed for plenty of time on the golf course. It wasn't meant to be a thrilling activity like base jumping or skydiving but things change in 1981 ronald reagan became the 40th president of the united states and with alan green span in charge the first thing he did was try to undermine glass spiegel he felt it took from his mentor ayn rand The many ideas from her, and one of them, that that regulation was definitely a bad thing, and that uh, businesses were best left to their own devices and could monitor themselves very effectively without any interference from government. So, in 1996, the Federal Reserve allowed bank holding companies to own investment banking operations that accounted for 25% of their revenues. This decision effectively made Glass-Steagall obsolete as virtually any bank would be able to stay within these limits. And there were also, around that time, the banks were starting to merge together. To, Citigroup was formed from two separate banks and became the largest financial services company ever formed, Um, which shouldn't have happened under Glass-Steagall, but but, um, the American government brought in the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act in 1999, which delivered the death row to to Glass-Steagall. So they were able then to form the biggest corporate... It was the biggest corporate merger ever at that time. Robert Rubin, Rubin, who was the Treasury Secretary at that time, um, under that, eventually became vice-chairman of the Citigroup. And um, over the next decade, he made over $120 million. What, obviously, as the... The root cause of the 2008 crash was derivatives... But Alan Greenspan wouldn't allow there to be any sort of uh, regulation of derivatives. There were statutes in place, which we'll tell, talk about in a moment, and we should have done it. But other people wanted to bring in f- further regulation because they could see what was going to happen. And uh, one of these people was the chairman of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, uh, was a woman called Brooksley Bourne. Uh, She made public comments about the potential instabilities of the derivatives market and began a review process. This triggered a ferocious response from Robert Rubin, his deputy Larry Summers, and Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan. This This was more than just a classic Washington turf war. It was a clash of ideologies. It was about regulation versus deregulation. Greenspan and his allies believed strongly in the neoliberal policies that had been in place since re-region well Brooksley Bowen um, was like She um, was at university in the early days of the Vietnam War, and one of the things that she used to hear from people is that why are you here? You're taking the space of a, a man who would otherwise have to go to war. So um, and she was, from the very beginning, kind of sidelined and not taken seriously. Um, anyway, the tactics used by Screen and Rubin, and Summers to stop any attempt at regulation was fear if derivatives were regulated capitalism would fall apart they won't. there would be market turmoil and risk couldn't be managed efficiently and they made the claim that even talking about regulation by even talking about regulation Bourne was threatening the stability of the market Larry Summers telephoned Bourne telling her that he had 13 angry bankers in his office demanding she stop the phone call may, may have been illegal <laughs> as the CFTC is an independent body from government and shouldn't have been interfered with, really. The, market, the financial market lobbied hard for legislation to make sure that derivatives remained unregulated. What they got was the Commodities Futures Modernisation Act in 2000. This legislation was passed without debate or review. In effect, banned regulators from looking at derivatives The argument being that the main traders in derivatives were banks and institutions who were capable of making their own assessment of risk. Brooksley Bourne resigned over this. And it was around then that the real uh, boom in derivatives began, expanding from 106 trillion in 2001 to a value of 531 trillion in 2008. Government protections did exist back in 1994, jumping back earlier when Greenspan was first in control. Bill Clinton had signed into law the Home Ownership and Equity Protection Act. This law was meant to be used by the Federal Reserve Board to stop unfair and deceptive practices in the mortgage market. But Alan Greenspan refused to use these new powers. He says here, where once the marginal applicants would have been denied credit, lenders are now able to risk effectively eh, quite effectively judge the risk posed by individual applicants it wasn 't until greenspan 's successor Ben Bernanke, took over at the Fed that the common sense rules were finally introduced, and even then he was two years into the job before he acted. After the crash, obviously derivatives were obviously based on mortgages, and mortgages uh, went through the roof because there was a housing boom at that time. After the crash, uh, Christopher Warren, a loan officer for AmeriQuest, it's like a mortgage company, at the very bottom of the barrel, posted a confession online. My managers and handlers taught me the ins and outs of mortgages, mortgage, fraud, drugs, sex and money money, money, and more money. My friend and manager handed out crystal meth to loan officers in a bid to keep them up and working long hours. At any given moment, cocaine and meth was being snorted inside restrooms. More than half the staff was manipulating documents to get loans to fund, to fund and more than 75% just made complete false statements. A typical welcome-aboard gift for a new employee was a pair of scissors taped and White Owl, three things a professional should never need. After posting this confession, Warren tried to leave the US, U.S. was arrest, arrested at the Canadian border. He had on him one million in Swiss franc certificates and $70,000 stuffed into his cowboy boots. And Crest claimed that Warren was not a typical employee. However, it's a fact that aggressive practices were widespread at the height, height of the house height of the housing bubble. The enormous demand for mortgages from Wall Street generated fierce competition between mortgage suppliers and this demand drove down the quality of the loans. It was a race to the bottom we found, says this gentleman here. We found that the guidelines and who we could lend, lend to were getting looser every month. In March 2012, Greg Smith, the head of Goldman Sachs' U.S. equity derivatives business in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, resigned. Smith, who had worked for Goldman for 12 years, wrote wrote his resignation letter as an opinion editorial for the New York Times. (coughs) And I'm quoting him directly here. The form has veered so far from the place I joined right out of college that I can no longer in good conscience say that I identify with what it stands for. I'm sad to say that I look around today and see virtually no trace of the culture that made me love working for this firm for many years. I no longer have the pride or the belief. I attend derivative sales meetings where not one single minute is spent asking questions about how we can help clients. It's purely about how we can make the most possible money from them. It makes me ill how callously people talk about ripping their clients off. Over the last 12 months, I have seen five different managing directors refer to their own clients as Muppets. When the history books are written about Goldman Sachs, they may reflect that the current chief executive officer, Lloyd C. Blankstein, and the president, Gary Cole, lost hold of the firm's culture on their watch. Smith's criticisms can easily be applied to the financial system as a whole, where, freed from the leash of government regulation, enormous, rapacious, socially destructive corporations have run amok. And we're still seeing it today because there's been very little (coughs) effort to get them back on any kind of leash. Let's go back a bit about the crash. In September 2008, Lehman Brothers, the fourth largest investment bank in the US, filed for bankruptcy. Fear gripped the markets, banks stopped lending to one another, and then to everyone else, and then to everyone else in what became known as the credit crunch. There was a frantic round of consolidations in, global bank, in the global banking sector. In the UK, Halifax Building Society and the Bank of Scotland was acquired by Lloyds, Merrill Lynch was taken over by the Bank of America, while J.P. Morgan bought bought Washington Mutual. The UK bank Northern Rock had overreached itself by borrowing heavily on the international money markets, and was the first to go here. It had used that money to extend mortgages to customers and then resold those mortgages (coughs) to investors. The suddenly falling away of investors left Northern Rock unable to pay its loans, As happened with other financial institutions, the bank had not put aside sufficient capital to get it through difficult times. When customers heard that Northern Rock had approached the bank for England for a loan, it caused the first run on a British bank for 150 years. The struggling bank was then taken over by the government. It was to be four years before it returned to public ownership. Back in the U.S., Hank Paulson, former chairman of Goldman Sachs, was now Treasury Secretary. It's interesting to say that many people in in the U.S. government in uh, overlooking financial situation. are often people who have come directly from banks, and when they finish their tenure, often go directly back into the banking sector. I'll talk about that again in a minute. Halden was another strong advocate of fettered free markets. Yet, despite this, he thought that only a massive intervention by government was going to halt the crisis. Along with Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, he pleaded with Congress to give the Treasury 700 billion with which it could use to store up the system. As the rotten core of the banking system crumbled, the global economy began to collapse, and disaster hit Greece, Ireland. Iceland and eventually the European Union. In each case, vast amounts of taxpayers' money was used to protect the banks. Debt was transferred to the general population. Banks kept any gain. Yeah, well, here we have a sort of a little illustration here of the revolving, literal revolving door, of the revolving door culture between government and the banking sector. When almost all the federal regulators of an industry share a sympathetic worldview with that industry, it creates a situation that leads to groupthink, non-existent prosecution and weak safeguards. It's no surprise that the banking reforms proposed after the crash by the US government were watered down again into a form that favoured giant banks over small ones. And we've seen since, uh, in recent times, um, the Republicans took over Congress and they immediately started to um, go up the few uh, regulations banking regulations that had been put in place so after the crash I'll talk a little bit about that later on but uh, I want to talk about going back to Rand and uh, the sort of uh, psychology and the psychology of people uh, on the right and the left let's talk about the left as well Um, there's basically been a large body of evidence showing that each side of the political divide people tend to process information in different ways resulting in a divergence of psychological traits Basically, why, why do we have this divide, this uh, psychological divide? There must be some um, evolutionary usefulness for it, of it. These tra- traits don't just to lead to contrasting ideologies, but different lifestyle choices in leisure, clothing, relationships and careers. They powerfully shape our lives, all the way down to the stuff we leave lying around at home and at work. In a U.S. study of self-identified conservatives and liberals, researchers examined the living spaces and offices of participants. What they found was that their bedrooms of conservatives tended to include more organizational items such as calendars and stamps. These bedrooms were more likely to contain household cleaning and mending accessories, such as laundry, baskets, irons and ironing boards. Conservative bedrooms were neater, cleaner, fresher, more organised and well lit. Decorations, this is America, of course, so um, we're talking about American flags. As decoration, Decorations were of a conventional nature, sports paraphernalia and flags, especially American flags, conservative offices were less stylish and less comfortable than those used by liberals. Bedrooms used by liberals contained a greater number of books, including books on travel, ethnic issues, feminism and music. There were also a larger variety of types of music, including world music, folk, classical and rock. They contained more art supplies, stationery maps, travel documents, and cultural memor- memorabilia. Liberal offices were more distinctive and colourful than Conservative offices. Liberals like to, what they've, they've studied, I mean, there's been hundreds of studies because it's a fascinating area. Liberals like to think in challenging ways. They enjoy complex problems. For them, it's not a difficulty if things are ill-defined or unresolved. Conservatives are more the opposite. They are more likely to categorise and divide people to either in either good or bad. In the conservative world, there are no grey areas. Only black and the black and white of certainty. This creates a, a clash of realities. Conservatives are resistant to change. They have a need for stability. The da- desire to manage threat, fear, and threat. Tension arises between the two groups because liberals are the people most likely to generate that dangerous change in the social, artistic, and scientific arenas. And this is not something conservatives <coughs> want to see. <coughs> many conservative personality traits can appear to be extremely negative but what they but they do have qualities which are positive in the right context patriotism decisiveness and loyalty to friends and allies liberals, a liberals ability to consider the complexity of an issue can look like weakness to a conservative Anne Coulter was a, like a famous firebrand uh, uh, right wing political commentary she said about this issue, very issue when you have backed a liberal into a corner if he doesn't start crying he'll say it's a complicated issue loving America is too simple an emotion, conservatives may not grasp n- nuance but we're pretty good at gras- grasping treason however this I'll have to go back a bit that in a minute. I just want to say something about uh, scientists and, and liberalism because what one of the studies, many of these studies, have come up with the same conclusion: that scientists tend to fall on the more liberal side of things. And one of the conservative arguments about higher education is that it brainwashes people into being liberal. But the opposite seems to be true: that uh, higher education, especially the sciences uh, and the arts. Um, attracts uh, liberals because you, uh, the liberals love of, of newness and novelty, and they're challenging the status quo. And you can certainly do that in science. You can find a way completely to know the apple cow. These very different personality traits may be useful to us as a a species. In a time of war, when decisive action is needed, there is little room for moral qualms or hesitation. An enemy's point of view does not need to be understood. Their feelings do not need to be empathised with. To win a war helps to be dedicated to the cause, disinclined to compromise, and certain the enemy is wrong. All conservative traits, rather than liberal ones. It's interesting that um, we had... um, Churchill as a war leader, and he was a great war leader, exactly the right man at the right time. But as soon as peace came around, he, ki- he was kicked soundly out of office. And that was probably the right decision, because you, you, uh, the best time to have a conservative, um, well, I say conservative, a, a right-wing leader is during war. During peacetime, you need other skills. This is um, a pie chart of um, basically the UK welfare budget. And the red section there, the teeny sliver you see there, is the unemployed section, and the orange bit is what was basically pensions. So you can see that the biggest section of the welfare bill here is, is goes on pensions rather than. Um, <coughs> The unemployed, but if you talk to the man in the street, you'd think that that red section was massively the part of it, and certainly um, that seems to be the case. Um, when I was drawing this chart, I was trying to get in also the kind of the amount of fraud that you would get out of um, unemployment, but it was the amount of fraud was so thin, it was thinner and the actual line t- take me to draw it. So that's why that's not there. And it's interesting to compare this fraud with the amount of uh, tax avoidance and tax evasion that goes on. Well, the top section here shows in a cube the total annual benefits here. The smaller one, unemployment. And you say the benefit fraud is the smallest one there. That's 2 billion. I mean, 2 billion is a lot of money, obviously. But it doesn't compare to the 32 billion in tax avoidance. And when I wrote, drew this, of course, I didn't know anything about the HSBC thing. So that figure's probably much bigger. And compare that to the 2 billion. I'm not saying that two billion is a, is a good figure, isn't it? You can make that smaller. But why is there such a, an effort uh, to, to clamp down on this and very little to clamp down on this? Well, it goes back because um, Rand's view of, uh, and generally the conservative right as a whole view on taxation is that taxation is you know, immoral. It shouldn't happen at all. And if they could, they'd scrap taxation because it's seen as theft. You know, that's why um, people bang on about all the tax evasion that goes on. But it's not seen as particularly bad, you know, on the right, on the far, especially the far right. So, uh, but on the other hand, uh, benefit fraud is, and that is, that's why they're so obsessed with that. It's interesting to... Um, I should have another chat up here, but I, about, it seems to see that liberals and conservatives have very different views on um, fairness. Um, liberals believe in fairness for everyone, for equal- inequality, whereas um, conservatives tend to think that if you put in a thing, if you're not putting anything, than you will yourself a bit, it's more to do with how much you put in towards how you get out. So they see um, benefit, that's what their obsessions with benefit fraud come from. I'm going to end there because I think we could really it'd be better to discuss a few things from this point. Thank you very much, everyone.
0: Thank you, Daryl. Um, you're welcome to remain at the podium or take a seat to you're more comfortable. Thank you very much. Now, I'd like to open the evening now to the question and answer session. Um, we are scheduled to go on until eight o'clock when we will then have to vacate the room. Those of you who do have questions as you're forming these ideas in your head, um, when I call on you, Please wait for the roving microphone to come to you. Um, identify yourself if you wish, and then ask Daryl your question. <clears throat> so, if we could, um, if we could begin while the audience is gathering his thoughts, perhaps as chair, I could sneak in one question of my own first, if uh-huh. I may. Please. In your sordid tale of all the personalities involved in the great financial crisis, the 2008 global financial crisis. In your view, who comes out looking like a hero? I think there are people
1: like Brooksley Bourne who did try and stem the tide, and there were individuals here, Mm. here and there. People like Greg Smith who, Mm. you know, uh, spoke up, and there are whistleblowers Mm. here and there. Mm. But when you're trapped inside a system Mm. where everybody's doing a particular thing, and your livelihood depends on it. It's very difficult
0: to do anything to really stand up, isn't it, really? It's I suppose the lesson for for all of us who are still working in the system is that we need to be individually braver. We need to be able to take on that
1: system. My background is in mental health. Originally, I worked um, as a nurse, and in any kind of bureaucracy, or a tendency, if anything goes wrong, for people to sort of um, uh, defend one another and sort Mm. of crowd in. Mm. So, uh, you know, I'm well aware of that sort of groupthink that can happen. Yeah,
0: yeah. You circle the wagons, you protect your own tribes. Even if that person had obviously done something wrong. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, Can I just
1: say it? Straight away, I should have said it in the talk. I am not blaming Ayn Rand for the 2008... And I'm not even really blaming them for the whole sort of wave of, um, of, of, of conservatism that has dominated the world mm. since the, ni- the, the early 1980s. Mm. It was a way for me to take an interest in character. And then draw a thread to the modern modern times, and to sort of illustrate certain aspects of it in terms of psychology as well as economics. So I'm not blaming you. you can take many good things from Ayn Rand: the determination to uh, creatively stand up for yourself and not compromise, and just st- sticking with it. Uh, these kind of things are very useful. Um, conservative traits really mm-hmm. so I've tried to take the, I'm a wishy-washy liberal myself of course. <laughs> but uh, that doesn't mean to say that I can't learn from other people that I can't make a little journey to the right so in some aspects that's good but it's when you see a whole society lurching one way uh, that is the, the, the difficult thing and I think one of the problems of a society at the moment is that yeah. conservatism um, the good things about conservatism is that um, it brings to society uh, a social glue, a cohesion, and a stability. Mm. And, and you certainly do need that in times of absolute chaos, mm. not just during a war. But um, one of the bad things that happen during the 1960s was during the sort of freedom that uh, a lot of liberalism b- b- bring, brought with it. it was a lot of chaos social chaos you start of, sort of untangling um, the sort of restraints the sort of definite to authority and uh, the gr- grasp that, re- the grip that religion has on people mm. and uh, basically people are starting to become morally adrift and you see at the edges of society much more crime happening I mean a crime wave happened started to happen in the late 1960s and early 70s and you can see that in the movies at the time with uh, Dirty Harry and Death Wish and The Godfather and all this kind of thing uh, which didn't wind down until the late 90s and I was even Living in a relatively crime, a low crime state, but it took a lot of that. And liberals don't like to hear this because that uh, liberals were responsible for crime. Mm. This is what conservatives often say about liberals: that you know, elite liberalism leads to crime. But there's some truth in that. There are dark elements to that that you have to look out for. But the good things about liberalism: that you do get scientific and social innovation. Mm. But that can lead to social chaos where you need a certain amount of break from the conservative side. So that's why we have these two sides. But we're living in a time now where we have too much break, basically, and not enough social liberalism. So I would like to address that. I think we need to drift back to the the social centre of politics. At uh, the moment, what we think of as centre of politics is, in fact, uh, to the right. Mm. I mean, they live. Labour government we have now um, is not that far removed from the Edward Heath Conservative government mm. of the early 1970s. Mm. Uh, my dad, who was a very Conservative, so refused to accept that um, um, the current Labour Party is, anyway, uh, a Conservative style party, but it is. Mm. They have a few, um, what you might think of as left-wing ideas, but generally they're a neoliberal party uh, much like the others. Mm.
0: Thank you. That's very helpful. It's very helpful to clarify that. In, moreover, you know, the, one needs to be clear that in the story you're telling, it is actually incredibly complex and nuanced and a, a not-so-careful reading of the narrative might suggest that there are only villains of a certain stripe and not of others. And just to use your own example, the heroes that show up in your story are the the individuals who stood up against the grain. They might well have been considered by Ayn Rand to be the individual heroes who stood up against what the rest of society was already doing, because they were the ones who refused to go with the flow. I think that's true, yes. I think she would recognize that. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, Audience questions. Oh, did you have another point you want to make? No, no, no. Okay. So could we have the mic down here, please? And then if somebody else wants to ask a question, if you could... Can I have the mic down here? That's for the next, if you could hold off in a second.
2: Go ahead. First sir. of all, uh, thank you so much for the presentation. It was very interesting. Uh, my question is, I see an irony in the sense that um, Ayn Rand had a very limited view of government and that you said that the three things she wanted were military, a police force, and the courts. Uh, but in the recent financial crisis, uh, I think it's ironic that the government was accused of moral hazard and of sort of per- perpetuating um, some of the factors that led to the crisis in the first place by bailing out the banks, by reinforcing their bad behavior. Um, so how do you think Ayn Rand would have, I guess, how do you think she would have looked at the problems that got us into the financial crisis, the, you know, the lack of regulation, but then the fact that it was, in fact, the government that stepped in and sort of kept banks afloat and, and now it seems that things are not any better than they were pre-crisis. She would just...
1: have hated the fact that um, um, government stepped in and bailed mm. out the banks. That we've taxpayers' money. Mm. There's no way she would have accepted that. Mm. Even though she believed in deregulation as much as possible. She would not have accepted that. If you take that risk, you should take
0: the hit, is what she would have said. Mm. Excellent question. Um, yourself, please.
3: This, this goes back to the very, very beginning of, of your talk and the book. I mean, it's so blatantly obvious that this woman's mother was a narcissistic personality and that basically everything, I mean to me it's obvious, sort of came after in her life and her views and everything else. She also was what used to be narcissistic personality disorder. I think it's fascinating. I want to thank you for explaining economics and, uh, and what 's been happening in the world in a way that I can understand it because i'm I'm a social historian, not an economist, but um, it's not it can't be a coincidence that in the, the DSM was it the DSM five the psychiatrist took out narcissistic personality disorder as a personality disorder, and that this seems to be an order that, that sort of dominates what 's happening economically with the inequality and the one percent and the, you know, all the stuff that 's happening and i just, 'd just love to hear your comments coming from a mental health background, and understanding these things probably better
1: well um, she spent three books basically trying to justify selfishness as a moral idea, really, so she was well aware of her own personality, she had a plenty of insight into her own personality. But I didn't know actually that they'd taken that out. Yeah. Yes. They but I don't I don't see a conspiracy. I think it's just something that happened really.
3: It just seems an odd coincidence hmm. at this time that it was
1: removed. Interesting. I think they're putting too much thing too many things in there really. <laughs> Well, what well it's, mean? it's it's, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, well, psychiatry is, um, lives into the waves of fashion just like anything else, I suppose, so it must be part of that, I think.
0: Can you just clarify, what year was that that they took that out?
3: It's the latest edition of the, D, is it the DSM-5 that's just in the last, Two, three years, mm. I think, that they've taken out Interesting. Um, narcissistic personality disorder. And I thought DSM it was science? because... What, what is DSM-5? Oh, the, the um, diagnostic service manual that psychiatrists use yeah. around around the world, particularly hmm. in the States, to determine if somebody's mentally ill or not if somebody fits in these categories well, they've got this. Yeah, homosexuality was in there once
1: and got taken out. Got taken it was out. just
3: the narcissism of the psychiatric profession.
0: That <laughs> Excellent. Self-referential. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. Um, the question from the gentleman in the middle there? Yes, go ahead, sir.
2: It's, uh, <clears throat> um, there's been articles written about the false binary demarcation between left and right. And as an example, for instance, some of the people that were involved in the Occupy movements see themselves um, sharing some of the outlook of the Tea par- people, like the Tea Party and the mm-hmm. and the con- and people conservative mindset, small C. And I think possibly what what the t- what the the issue is bit, uh, the size size of government. What is the purpose of government? What it should be doing? And one of the things which doesn't seem to be raised is localism. I mean, I know it gets thrown up sometimes, but Within a UK t- context, neither party has ever, uh, never relinquished power from the centre. Even under Margaret Thatcher, for all her you know uh, pontifications, government grew. And now under so, we, like in education here, we have power being taken away from the local authorities and centralised. So perhaps what people are like people like I Ian we were talking about was. Um, the, 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 uh, the dangers in not just collectivism but in big
0: government thank you, thank you. size of government centralization well uh, what is
1: government for but to supposedly to serve the needs of ordinary people if it's citizens and not it should not something's gone wrong when it serves the need of giant corporations so yeah I think you're right they should be thinking more local down to street level we should have government yeah not away from the streets but in fact what's happened is a sort of sucking away of power even to some degree I mean there's a um, treaty going on I can't remember the name of the treaty that's going on in secret now does anyone know yes that's it yeah. I can never remember the right number of initials in the right order but um, and that seems to be giving power away further power legal powers to giant corporations it's the exact opposite of what you said really yes it should be going and it hasn't
0: and it hasn't done for 50 years okay uh, questions alright we'll have the gentleman over here
4: okay. Actually, um okay. I read an article in The Atlantic today that was talking about the differences between liberals and conservatives in a US context when it came to comedy and it was trying to work out why there aren't more right-wing comedians in the mould of John Stewart, for instance, and I won't go into detail about the conclusions it drew, but one of the sort of summaries that it posited was that liberals or left-wingers tend to find the world absurd mm. whereas right-wingers tend to get angry about it. Um, LAUGHTER You're a cartoonist, and a liberal, do you think you do that because you find, or try to find, the world absurd in perhaps a constructive manner?
1: Well, I hate injustice, so I immediately hone in on that, that's what powers me, anger powers me, (laughs) really, when I see an obvious injustice happening, something that needs to be corrected. I can't really speak for stand-up comedians, but it seems to me that most left, if you like, comedians are, tend to be more liberal because it's funny if your targets are powerful and it tends to be whoever's in government at that time, so it tends to put them directly on the left. If you're like Jim Davidson or someone on the right then you're basically making fun of minorities and it's just not as funny, is it really? And also, it
0: outrages me. Thank you. Excellent answer. The woman whose head is keeping her very warm. <laughs> Could we get the microphone? Yeah, you've got it? Excellent.
2: Yeah. Um, sorry to come back to Rand again, but aside from a perceived big government concept, don't you think she'd be disappointed in the way capitalism's turned out? It seems like in her novels, the heroes are the architects, the industrialists. It's uh, Society's driven for her by people that create things, and yet we've been left with an economy built on financial services that doesn't really create much, not least of all money for the rest of us.
1: I think you're right. I think she would be disappointed for the reasons I spoke a little about earlier that, we're seeing power being sucked away from people, from individuals instead of individuals having any power. This gentleman here, Paul Stock talked a little bit about that as well. So I think she would be disappointed. She'd be glad that a lot of regulation have been swept away. But the things that have been left um, still in power, sort of big, faceless corporations and
0: super-rich individuals... Thank you. Um, I know you've got your hand up. I've noted that. But there were some others who had their hand up earlier. So if I may, I'll come back to you. So the gentleman up there. And then I'll come down to you, and then to you. Thanks. Hi. um, My name is Steve. I'm a master's student in finance here at the Um, You mentioned, Darrell, that you wouldn't seek to blame RAND specifically, personally,
2: for um, CDOs, CDSs, other derivatives. Um, so my question particularly relates to blame. Um, do you think you would, uh, you would be able to attribute the notion of
0: blame to the financial crisis? And uh, If so, to whom would you attribute the notion? Would it be regulatory failure? Would it be bankers who are taking on excessive risk um, or some, some third party I'm missing? Thanks.
1: Thank I, you. Th- I think certainly regulators have a lot to answer for, especially in the United States during the housing bubble. I mean, Alan Greenspan had powers on these books to do something about that and did nothing. And again, we're seeing a lot of confusion between government and the banks that are supposed to be regulated. Often, i people, like I illustrated with the revolving door earlier, people moving to and fro between government. It confuses the idea of what is government and what is private, really. I mean, that's one of the big issues there if you're in government you're a government minister and the bank comes to say to you and says "Well, uh, when you leave office we've got a ready job for you you're basically owning that guy or that woman before they've left office if you especially if you're offering them a huge salary and that kind of thing should be and we've seen too much of that of people leaving office and immediately getting these plum
0: jobs uh, in the city or on Wall Street. It's a revolving door idea that yes. we talked about. Okay, the gentleman here and then I'll come to you and then to you. Holding self-interest to account, do we need more something like a PCORA commission to actually hold people to account that actually have self-interest?
1: A commission? Uh, I'm not sure, to be honest. No, please explain.
0: During the Great Depression, there was a PCOR commission um, and actually went through all the problems and started to identify individuals that were started to hold to account. We've got Elizabeth Warren in, um, in the USA that is probably almost alike, but she's been fighting a losing battle, really, and, and everything she's done has been shut down.
1: Yeah, I think that would be a really good idea and especially Elizabeth Warren who would uh, be, out, be out there taking heads. But we need the political will from the top and it, uh, we haven't seen it, it's just not there really, is it? And uh, a part of the problem there is um, party financing, especially in the States because you get Wall Street basically contributing to you know, both parties in a huge way. Uh, so when it doesn't matter then whoever you get in power they're going to be inhibited to do anything about it because they're they're donors aren't they they're going to work for their donors and not for the people who elected them
5: okay. so that
1: in the states certainly there needs to be a serious movement to take money out of politics the cork brothers should be not be pouring mm. millions of dollars into politics. It's just unacceptable. You basically, what's happening in the States is almost a handful of individuals, very rich individuals, dictating where all the money goes. And if you dictate where the money goes, you're dictating, dictating who gets elected.
0: Well, now before we take a question, I read recently that in the United States, not all elections are won by the candidate with more money. Only 94% of them. <laughs> so if you could just ask, hope. It. I wanted to go back to a comment you just made in the question and answer when you said that you thought Ayn Rand would actually be disappointed with the government uh, bailing out the banks. Because while I can see from what you've said that she'd be disappointed that the taxpayers then have to pay for that, wouldn't that also be like the complete exemplification of? What little I know of her philosophy that you should be able to take what you can make and get out of the system. So wouldn't, wouldn't that be like a case of her philosophy kind of biting itself?
5: Because they're making all the money through a system and they're gaming it and they're able to do it and take it for themselves. So
1: That's an interesting internal contradiction I'd not, not thought about, actually. I wish she was here to answer that. I can't speak for her, but uh, her whole philosophy had lots of uh, internal contradictions like that, really, Uh, ideas of individuals. But then in her own personal circle, she wouldn't stomach any individuality, just her way of thinking. Hmm, So it's not that kind of contradiction is not
0: unusual for her, really. Okay, the gentleman in the second row, before we go on, over here. No, the microphone's coming to you.
4: Um, I've just done a quick calculation since um, I think the rise of the deregulation ideology of Thatcher Reagan in the early 80s in the States, I think my figure is correct about roughly 20 of those years were under a conservative president, 15 to date have been under liberal stroke democratic but the dominant ideology as you outlined has been Greenspanism with very little uh, reform of it. And uh, that arose. Uh, there was, why it arose was broached on. Uh, my memories of it were that what gave that the great impetus was the massive worldwide inflation crisis of the 70s. And that was the reaction to that. These people were hailed as saviors, and on the back of that came deregulation. And I think this is the lesson of uh, history, that certain periods dominant ideologies which suited... I mean, when I was a young person, the word that was described definitely in Britain, the dominant ideology was... Uh, what was it called? A, um, a Rab Butler or Hugh Gateskill It was amalgamated, I think was something like butskillism, or something like that. Uh, what I see now, I think, and I think you were just about to come on to that but didn't really have a chance in the limited time, how death is handled... And why austerity will not work. Japan being the proof of that. And this is the whole dilemma. There is no alternative. Keep going with austerity. Uh, And in a way, a new alternative, a new necessary dominant ideology to get us out of this logjam has not transpired yet.
1: No, but I think think it will... uh inevitably happen I and mean, we've just have to unfortunately we were living through this we're living through history and we don't know how it's going to pan out but it's it's still unwinding we don't really what you say is interesting about the sort of inflationary times before I mean I was just a teenager in the 70s so I can't really remember much about it but that's really interesting that it was you think it's mostly a reaction to those that period I'm not a trained economist I think
4: that was the dominant explanation the time, which seems to be superficially correct That was what gave the right wing parties going to this
1: you know uh, inflation out of control okay thank you
0: there's a question from the back
1: Um, thank you very much it looks like a really lovely book Uh, what is your target audience for this I mean that's uh you know, is it like, you know, 16-year-olds or is it, um, is it an audience like this tonight? And what I also would like to ask a sort of a creative question because nobody's actually asked anything about cartoons so far. And I think that's a real missed opportunity, um, given that you're a cartoonist and not an economist. Um, what, what, what aesthetically, how do you... I mean, notions like greed, um, competition, money... How did you develop these ideas, themes, visually, aesthetically... I mean, Greenspan, for example, how did you arrive at his, you know, you know his persona? Thank you. Oh, it's very difficult to answer because I often, often tell people, the way I do books, the way I do cartoons, don't do it the way I do it because it's all wrong. <laughs> I generally just often... What I did, really, is that I sat down and just read everything that I could, actual books, real actual books, as well as the internet, until I was sort of soaked in it enough that I felt I could easily easily explain it to other people. If I could explain it to other people and they understood it, then I knew that I'd understood it properly myself. So, and then I began drawing it, almost page by page, as you see in the book, and I one page at a time. And how I get the visual style, I just need to... I particularly believe in clarity in the writing as well as the drawing. So I don't want people worrying about where people are standing in relation to one another, which panel to look at next. So it's all kept very simple. And uh, also I'll keep to a a very limited colour palette because I think it's stronger that way. I was able to use a different colour palette, more or less, in each of the three sections, and I think that's very aesthetically pleasing. So all these things are going on, and often I'm not consciously aware that I'm doing that as well. So, what about the
0: target audience? The
1: target audience: anyone who wanted to understand uh, what had happened and needed a a book to read it really. I almost didn't know who would buy it and read it. I just know that my main reason for at least starting it was that I wanted to understand it. And I felt if I felt passionate enough about a thing, then hopefully other people will feel
0: the same. Excellent. Thank you. Um, yes, you've got the mic now, please. Go yes, ahead. Yes,
5: um, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, in the view of the. Um changes, uh, you know, Ayn Rand, she grew up, she was born in 1905, so maybe um, just an idea, maybe philosophical um, ideas were uh, true at the time, they they had attractiveness at that time, but with all the um, changes in technology and the advancement in technologies, what I mean is, for example, the financial instruments, the derivatives, it has become so complex that um, it's quite difficult to, uh, for people to assess the consequences of their actions. You know, her ideas were like you have to be selfish and you have to bear the consequences of your actions. So, uh, but maybe it was true then. But you know, today it's 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 too difficult, and we need the regulation to mm. kind of put some. boundaries to to set some limits but uh, so maybe it's sort of obsolete so I Mm. wouldn't interested you
1: thank you well I I think that selfishness as a philosophy and a way of life has never been necessary, has always been wrong and it still finds fertile ground though especially in America you Oh, Especially during the early days of Tea Party rallies, you'll see things like uh, Ayn Rand was signs, placard signs, uh, Ayn Rand was right, and uh, who is John Galt, and referring back to Atlas Shrugged and all the work. So it's still out there and it still offers a very simple uh, narrative for people who want to grasp that of uh, big government being bad and individualism being good, socialism being bad as well. So it's, you know, it's still out there. People still grasp onto that, but I wish it would become irrelevant. But it's still... I mean, there are plenty of politicians hmm. in America who say they've read her and have been influenced by her. Excellent. Yeah, Rand Paul, I think. Uh, yeah. Hmm.
0: Excellent. Okay, the gentleman just got his hand up now.
4: Just curious for your your next book, whether you'd be sort of curious to uh, explore sort of alternative narratives to neoliberalism, given that the right has the kind of helm on on what uh, makes sense economically, perhaps that's one of the left's big shortfalls is that they can't provide a kind of compelling, you know, that there is no alternative. Um, Is there an alternative narrative that you could perhaps explore visually in a compelling way?
1: I have thought about writing a second book which would be basically, you know, what should be done in the spheres Mm -hmm. of politics and the social arenas. But, I mean, it took me two years to write that one, and I would like to have a year off before I, you know, jumped into another huge project, really. So... Could what could be
0: done what, be done what could be done yes <laughs> fair enough he'll credit you with the idea in his next book I'm going to have to take a last question here he's already asked a question so there's an opportunity for me to turn him down if somebody else wants to if I may that gentleman
4: Why is there so little public anger and biting in the streets or anything like
1: that? That is like a big mystery, isn't it? Why aren't we all... I mean, it cost me an arm and a leg to come down from, on the train from Yorkshire today. And I don't know why commuters aren't like rioting at the railway stations uh, for this. Um, I think it's a general feeling that nothing can be done. It doesn't matter who you vote for. There's nobody, no, there's no big charismatic figure on the left come forward and, and offered an easy solution to it. And also another problem they have is that a majority of the media is owned basically by, especially newspapers, by a handful of individuals who are on the right as well. So that makes it difficult. There's a big row, isn't there? Just this week blown up by the Telegraph about the influence uh, uh, you know, that HSBC had on the newspaper during the recent round. So you can see this sort of a chilling effect on what's being reported. And even scrupulously, previously scrupulous organizations, like the BBC seem to be, be skewing to the right in, 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 the, recent, in the past uh, five to ten years.
0: I'm afraid I'm going to have to be an evil regulator and call the evening to a close. Um, let me just remind everyone that Daryl will be signing books just outside this theater. Copies of his excellent book are on sale right there as well. Let me first thank all of you for your attention, your patience, your enthusiasm, and all of your questions. And if I could invite you to join me again in thanking Daryl for a truly delightful evening.